Hello. I'm delighted to welcome you to listen to our Bible teaching program called Search for Truth. Thanks for tuning in. We have another talk today in our series called Nothing But Christ Crucified. Brian, our Bible teacher, is looking into issues and practices of the early church as recorded by the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the church in Corinth, or as it's usually called, 1 Corinthians. Our talk today is centred on chapter 12, and Brian's giving it the title, There's Unity in Diversity. So, let's listen to Brian as he unwraps the teaching of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 for us. Thanks. As you've said, in this study we come to the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians. It's conventional to admire the breadth of diversity on display in this chapter, with its varieties of gifts, varieties of ministries and varieties of effects. But as we read this in a moment, and come across exactly those terms, I want us to remember the starting point of this whole letter was focused on addressing division at Corinth. With that in mind once again, let's now turn to chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of ministries, and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In continuing his written ministry to the sadly divided local church of God at Corinth, the Apostle Paul is not so much emphasising the varieties he describes there, but the unity behind that diversity, the same Spirit, the same Lord and the same God, each member of the Godhead being mentioned, even as the gifts are allocated to each Christian believer. Also, the point at which we paused our reading at the end of verse 7 is again important to note, since it makes it very plain that the purpose behind God giving the spiritual gifts, which Paul will shortly expand on, is that their operation should be for the common good. We would suggest then, on the strength of this biblical text, that if any gift is treated as being mainly for the personal growth of the individual Christian, then that's a distortion of God's stated design here. We read in verse 8, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. We've just had nine gifts listed which were for the common good. The word used to introduce and define all these spiritual gifts shows that they're all a result of God's grace, the gifts being the visible effects of the grace of God. This matter of giftedness is not so much our God-given spiritual capacity, far less our performances, but this giftedness is focused on God's use of his gifts to bless others spiritually through us. 
if we're going to understand this chapter correctly, we're going to have to distinguish between two uses of the same word for church, which we come across in the New Testament. We often hear people talking about the early church without defining what they mean. Judging by the context, we understand they're most likely referring to the first Christians. You may say, I'm splitting hairs, but it has to be said that they're using the word church in a way that's not defined in the New Testament. Sloppiness on terminology, which the Holy Spirit has used with precise accuracy, has led to confused thinking over the centuries, which is why it's vital to strive for accurate biblical use of the word translated as church. So what are the two biblical uses of this word church or ecclesia? It's either used of a well-defined group of Christian disciples in a given locality under the care of elders and deacons and commissioned to carry out the functions of worship, prayer and witness, or it's used of all who have ever truly professed saving faith in Christ, beginning from the time of the first spirit-filled preaching recorded in Acts chapter 2, until the future time referred to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when Christ will return to the air to receive to himself and so to take away from the earth all Christians, whether dead or alive. Although the Apostle Paul is writing to the local church of God at Corinth, in this particular chapter, the 12th, he's largely taken up with teaching about the universal church, if I may call it that, so long as we understand, by that expression, the body of all believers as we defined it biblically a moment ago. This is what 1 Corinthians 12 verse 12 says, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptised into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Most famously, we read in John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 16, that God so loved the world. But as that verse clarifies, God's love there, in the sense of that verse, is not confined to those who belong to the whosoever, who escape perishing eternally. But now let's consider another great Bible verse. It's Ephesians 5 and verse 25, which says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. There's a clear difference in the extent of these two loves, the one for the world, the other for the church, and the church there in that sense being all born-again believers of this present church age. However, the most important distinction is perhaps in the intent of these two loves. The intent of the love in John 3.16 is not to save eternally from punishment all who are its objects, whereas, by contrast, the love of Ephesians 5 and verse 25 has as its clear intention the salvation of all who are members of the universal church, the church, the body of Christ. Perhaps, at this point, it would be good to comment on two metaphors which the Bible uses to bring clarity to our thinking about Christ's church, the universal church. To explain himself in this regard, God gives us the picture of human marriage, and the other picture is that of the human body. It's Ephesians chapter 5, 
primarily that takes up the picture of marriage between a husband and a wife as portraying the eternal relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and all believers. It's amazing to consider the intimacy, the eternal intimacy that God wants with us. The husband's love for his wife and the wife's submissive respect for her husband in a lifelong union was God's intention in giving us the institution of marriage in order to depict the respective roles of Christ and his church. More widely, and certainly here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we come across the other metaphor which invites us to understand something of Christ's church by analogy with the functioning of our own human body. Let's return to our reading at verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 12. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we deem less honourable, on these we bestow more abundant honour, and our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honour to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honoured, all the members rejoice with it. That entire section, which we've just read from verse 14 to verse 26, is dealing primarily with the human body. But the analogy is clearly drawn in verse 27, so that all the preceding points we've just read have their application. Verse 27 says, Now you are Christ's body, and individually members of it. Returning to our distinction between the two major uses of the word church in the New Testament, we should not be confused when Paul says to the believers at Corinth, that is, to the local gathered disciples in the church of God at Corinth, who were following, albeit imperfectly, the teaching of the Lord's apostles, when he says to them, You are Christ's body. Obviously, those to whom this letter was addressed were not the whole universal church. They were only a small subset, even at that time, of the body of all believers. The sense here must then be that what the entire church is in its character was to be true of this and every other local church. Not only should each and every church of God in any given locality be typical in its expressed character to that of the universal church, but the emphasis on unity in the early part of this chapter requires that all local churches which are on the biblical pattern should be harmoniously interdependent. 
it's evident that independent local churches practising different beliefs and practices fall shamefully short of expressing the spiritual reality of the flawless union of all Christian believers in the universal body of Christ. Each local church, holy in character, and all these churches functioning together in a coordinated way would seem to be the only adequate and biblical way of fulfilling this grand body metaphor of the universal church. Yet again, may I remind you of the opportunity to send for the booklet which accompanies this series. It's free, it's very useful, it gives the Bible references and sources so you can pursue further study if you wish. And uh, just a a read by itself is well worth uh, the effort of sending for the book. So if you'd like a copy, please write in, making sure to let us have your address. Ask for the title, Nothing But Christ Crucified. Now, you can order by email or by post, and here are our contact details. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. It's been great to have your company today and we thank you for your interest in these talks. I hope you enjoyed today's study and God willing there's a further talk in this series next week so please join us if you can. Until then, very best wishes from Bible teacher Brian, our studio technician David, our singers and me, John. So cheerio and may God richly bless you. The soul that on Jesus had me for repose, I will not tie down, but desert to it.